This podcast is made in collaboration with the Jewish Journal. If you're looking for a stable, financially secure, safe career, one profession you definitely want to stay as far away as you can from is journalism. There's a reason Jewish mothers aren't praying for their kids to become doctors, lawyers, or journalists. But at the end of the day, journalism is one of the main pillars of modern society. And many would even say it's a pillar of democracy. Itai Engel is a household name in Israel, but while his name lives comfortably in every home in Israel, Itai himself does quite the opposite. Since the early 90s, Itai has been flying to and covering the most conflict-ridden regions in the world. From Bosnia, Rwanda, and Kosovo in the 90s to Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Lebanon in the 2000s. This decade, Itai has covered the civil war in Syria and the war against ISIS in Iraq. While most wars drive people away, it seems that war draws Itai Engel in. Itai started his career out, as many journalists in Israel do, in the Army Radio. He worked as a reporter for Israel's primetime Friday night news show, Ulpan Shishi, where he prepared documentary pieces. And later, he worked for Uvda, one of Israel's leading news magazine shows. We are thrilled and honored to be joined by Itai Engel on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, How are yeah, you? Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, yeah, great. You also won uh, a luxurious prize here in Israel, right, for your work. Uh, Sokolov Award. Yes. Yeah, it's like, you know, like we've Israeli of Pulitzer, but, you know, it's Israeli. Yeah. Before we get to the episode, guys, I have to tell you about our sponsors over at the Chosen One Card Game. Let's face it, we Jews, we're not really good at sports or keeping our opinions to ourselves. But we're not bad at funny. We do funny, all right. The Chosen One card game is certified hilarious. Okay, you get a huge set of Jewish-themed question and answer cards, and you match them up, and the funny combinations are hilarious. And best of all, of course, it's Shabbat friendly, so you can play it on Shabbat. Noah and I were playing this game before we recorded, and we were literally cracking up from the first combo. Apparently, the reason I don't go to Temple anymore is because of Gene Simmons. This game is a must-have for any Jew who considers himself a Jew. The Chosen One card game, guys. Visit thechosenonegame.com, thechosenonegame.com, and use the promo code 2NJB for a discount. Again, that's thechosenonegame.com, and use the promo code 2, the number 2NJB, for a discount. So what does your your mom say? What did she say when you told her, I'm going to war zone tomorrow, mom? My mom. Um, you know, my mom needed to be educated. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the beginning was tough. Uh, my father is a businessman. He's a, got a PhD in business. So he, he told me, you know, it might be the wisest thing you've ever done. My mother was just, you know, on the verge of freaking out completely. And, you know, so actually from day one, you know, beside journalism, I had to work on how to convince my mother that I'm in a very safe place and that she doesn't need to worry at all. So, you know, in every single day of my life of covering um, world affairs and conflicts, you know, comes the time when I have to take my satellite phone and talk to my mother and lie to the woman I love the most, you know, for like two minutes 
you know, bullshit, only lies, you know, nothing is happening here, don't believe the media, don't believe the news, I'm not in a dangerous place, I'm doing something about refugees, you know, in the outskirts of everything, don't worry about it. And the reality... That wasn't an explosion, it was just a rock concert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, actually, it actually happened. Wow. Not me with my mom, but with my wife. In Mosul, I gave someone... Uh, the phone, uh, the satellite phone, and he couldn't speak a word in English. Uh, he was a Shia, you know, Iraqi. And I told him, listen, uh, you know, I can speak a bit of Arabic. So I, I told him, listen, just say, you know, no Daesh, no problem. Hello, Konjo. That's my wife's name. And then, hello, Konjo, no problem. No Daesh. I mean, when you give someone else uh, the phone to talk to your wife or mother, it brings a special effect, you know, because it doesn't, they don't believe me anymore. But if someone else coming, you know, immediately they start to laugh. So all the mayhem, you know, theoretically of the place, you know, disappear. And then he said, hello, Konjo, no problem. So she asks him, so, so what is happening? No problem. <laughs> no, you know, he lost his, vo th that's like the limit of his vocabulary. And then, you know, there was a missile, you know, coming uh, from an aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> and he shows me, you know, and I, and I got it on tape, you know, for myself, you know, on, uh, on film. And he shows me the, the smoke and just keep on going, man. No problem. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. The real problem comes uh, when I come and I'm not, you know, bringing any dispatches while in there. I just collect a lot of uh, materials and then I edit my documentary. And when they watch my documentary, you know, my credibility... I completely lost it with my wife and my mother in this regard. Yeah. So yeah. they don't buy it anymore when you tell them. No, not there's really. a problem. <laughs> no. Um, so what? What? I mean, what led you to take on this crazy lifestyle? Well, I, I, I began uh, my journalism life, uh, as you said, in the army radio station, which, unlike you know the name of it, it sounds like a military mouthpiece, but it is it was exactly the opposite i mean just imagine you know uh 80 of the workers of the journalists of the music editors are within the range of 18 to 21 so it's very young and lively radio station and we just wanted to break the rules we didn't give a damn you know to the fact that we belong to the army and actually the army chief of staff back then was Ehud barak he said that he wants to close this radio station he doesn't see any advantage in it but it you know it become such an institution uh, in Israeli culture, so he couldn't close it. What I want to say, you know, <clears throat> it's, it's an amazing place to begin your career as a journalist. And I was a foreign affairs editor. But as a foreign affairs editor, there happened to be, uh, you know, an Israeli soldier, you cannot really go out. You're just, you know, uh, confined to a very, very small place. And you talk about places you've never been in, you're making comments about people you never met. And I thought, you know, that's life. And I did it fine. And, you know, people were very satisfied with me. And I happened to get this job, you know, exactly when all the world turned upside down. I got it in May 89. Two weeks later, it was uh, the massacre in uh, Tiananmen Square in Beijing. Uh, two months later, came the Berlin Wall came down. All the Eastern Bloc collapsed. Then, you know, it was the turn of uh, the Soviet Union to be dismantled. Nelson Mandela got out of prison, the end of the apartheid. So it was foreign affairs all over. And 
you know, and I became an important journalist, you know, unlike what I thought and unlike what the network thought, you know, because when you, they give you foreign affairs editor, foreign affairs in Israel, which is a very provincial country, you know, doesn't seem much. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was such a dramatic, you know, uh, period of time. And I remember that was my first hesitation, you know, in Tiananmen Square. We regarded very, very highly, you know, the commentators, not the field correspondents, you know, uh, field correspondent. In Hebrew, you call it Katav. So he had like a bad nickname for uh, Katav. We said Ktavlav. Like your little mm-hmm. doggy, you know, you need to go and work hard. We were a very young and uh, obnoxious group of people. And I thought, you know, being a commentator, this is the thing. You know, you, you want to be a pundit. You want to be like an expert, even though you've never been, you know, one minute in the field. And in Tiananmen Square, I realized, you know, that all the experts just missing out. They were wrong. And the e- interesting information I got from these field correspondents, you know, they were talking about, you know, there was one division of uh, Chinese soldiers who didn't do anything and then came another division and they see something in their eyes. It's not like a sentence, you know, of an expert. It's something like from the field and you think, oh, it's not dignified. But then you realize, yeah, they got it. And then they started, you know, rolling tanks on the, on the citizen. And it became even bigger, you know, when all the Eastern Bloc, Soviet Bloc uh, collapsed because, again, all the commentators and the most respected experts in the world just collapsed along with the wall. They didn't get it. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what is happening. They said what they think would happen, and it was absolutely wrong. And then I realized, you know, no, journalism is not what I've been thinking all the time. You need to go out. You know, because till that point of time, it worked because the world was sort of like built like in hierarchy. You have like uh, the people at the top, and they rule the world and they play with the little people like yeah. little soldiers. But, you know, sometimes everything is turning upside down when revolutions come. So the people at the top, you know, are not relevant anymore. So if there are your sources as an expert or a journalist, you know, it doesn't count anymore. So you will be wrong. And in order mm-hmm. to understand what is happening, you need to go out, you need to go to the field. And this is where I realized that's what I want to do. And I needed to wait, you know, till uh, and the duration of my uh, service in the army will finish and I will become a citizen. Leave. You can't leave yeah. Israel while you're in yeah, the military. Yeah, yeah. So when's the first time that you actually get the chance to kind of pack your bags and, and go somewhere? It was 91, 1991. And uh, then the war in Croatia began, <laughs> even before Bosnia. Bosnia was Great after na- army 92. vacation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> By the way, yeah, I didn't have any any vacation after the army until like uh, until today, (laughs) two thousand and one, two thousand and one. Only you know like ten years later, and then I went to Croatia, and it was a crazy move, you know, because no one wanted me to go. When I told you know uh, the head of this uh, army radio station that I want to go, you know, he kind of laughed at my face because, (laughs) like. I mean, we are Israelis, we're not supposed to cover affairs of other people. And, you know, if there is something happening in the world, I mean, you're not the one that I would think about because, you know, I'm not a field correspondent. I've been, you know, in a room for uh, two and a half years uh, talking. I can talk nicely about people, but I never had like uh, the field experience. And And I don't look like, you know, someone who will manage, you know, 
uh, in a place of conflict, he really laughed at my face and no one financed me. So actually it was on my expense, you know, to go there like with sleeping bag, with a tent. I don't know what I've been thinking, but you know, that's the beginning. Beginning is not logic. Beginning is only passion. And uh, I'm really, really happy that I, that I did it, you know. And so I saw you talk about this in, uh, in another interview that uh, you, you assured people, you know, don't get it wrong, that you are terrified when you are in these places. And just to kind of convey to our listeners, when you mean you don't look like the kind of person, Itai is like very tall, but lanky. You're kind of like, you know, you look like you might, uh, you know, like you're not exactly I'm very, the... very, very skinny. Yeah. I'm the last <laughs> one people will think about, you know, when they think about someone in a place where war is taking place. Yeah. So what I'm wondering is where did that, because for me, that's courage is like standing in the face of fear, being terrified, but still standing. So where do you think that courage comes from? Is it maybe from the fact that you weren't like this big guy, you know? By the way, I mean, I thought it is uh, a dis- disadvantage of mine, the way I look. I mean, at the beginning, you know, it was like a dream of mine to become a field correspondent, to feel the heartbeat, to see how things really look like from within. But then, you know, at the first time, I was so terrified. I was so terrified. And what made it even more, you know, problematic for me, I saw the other people, other correspondents, and everybody was Hot. so big and so <laughs> macho, you know, they looked like, you know, warriors themselves. And I thought to myself, these are real men, look at you, skinny boy on the verge of tears. I, I really was. And uh, this is not a place for you. And it happened, you know, the second time. What was time. the breaking point at the first, like, was there a... I mean, you know, you know, in Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia, I, I just ran away. I just wanted to go away. Like, it was like the sad acknowledgement that, you know, admit it, you ain't got it. And I wanted to run away, but the problem was that you, running away from Sarajevo was more dangerous that, than staying in Sarajevo because Sarajevo was, you know, um, it was walls and building all over, so you could take a hide, you know, from uh, the snipers on the hills. But when you went out of Sarajevo, you know, you were completely exposed and there were numerous journalists who were killed, you know, on their way out. So I stayed in Bosnia because I was frightened. And then, you know, after two days, there was a ceasefire, so I took my chance to get out. And, you know, this is where everything happened. You know, I fulfilled my dream in the sense that people talk to me. All of a sudden they talk to me and they talk to me much more than they did to the journalist that I adored till that moment, you know, the macho-like journalist. And it was a horrifying phenomena, for example, in uh, Bosnia there was a systematic raping of women. And... Uh, a friend of mine, you know, we became friends while in there. He was a Dutch guy. He was so big and, you know, like so macho. And, and he told me, you know, it's horrifying, but these women, they, they're not talking about it. And it took me a while to understand why they wouldn't talk to him about it, you know, because when you see the way he looks, even though he's a very nice man, you know, his appearance might remind these women or other victims like children you know aggressor yeah aggressor. the aggressor you know that attacked them uh-huh. and you can say a lot of things about me but like you uh in a very understatement way hinted i i cannot you know no one if i enter a room say oh my god look who's coming let's run away no that's not the way i look so i mean i look so skinny and i, and I look like you, you know i have like a baby face 
all the things that I thought, you know, sort of a disadvantage. You also have a soothing voice. It reminds me of a soothing voice. And it reminds me of what they say about... Um, I think this is the problem. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. There we go. Um, it reminds me of uh, uh, Louis Theroux. They say they hip- he hypnotizes his interviewees when he's, like, penetrating them with his... Ease of being, and I don't know. And do, do you do you find yourself hypnotizing people <laughs> from time to time, interviewees? I don't think I'm hypnotizing people. I mean, Louis Theroux has got his way. You know, he's not like other journalists. You know, in his approach. But don't but don't forget. You know, Louis Theroux coming with a set of people. You know, of a very famous network. So he's surrounded by cameraman, assistant cameraman, sound man, producer, all over. So it's like a bunch of guys with them. And you? So alone. I, I'm alone. Most of the time, I'm alone. So you're the director, the talent, the, the I'm producer. A cameraman. I'm a cameraman. I do the sound. I do everything. So again... You choose it that way so that you can be more intimate? Or it's just a production? It, you know, it, it became like something that I, I... I didn't have the luxury and the budget, you know, to, to have a crew. Um, so kind of from circumstance, it just be kind of I mean, became the way. In the, the radio, you need to get, take just a tape, you know, and yeah, you can do it by yourself. Then even with the TV, you know, we didn't have any budget. We're not CNN. We're not BBC. And uh, so I had to try and do everything. And again, I was very jealous, you know, with the big crews of like the CNN, BBC. I mean, it's like 10 people, you know, on a mission. It's like the correspondent, you know... With tie, suit, makeup, look very impressive. And then, you know, cameraman, assistant cameraman, you know, soundman with a big boom, you know, uh, big microphone, translator, fixer. And, you know, in war zones, you have like two, sometimes more, you know, bodyguards. And bodyguards will be like ex Navy SEALs with machine guns. So they look very impressive. And in relay, you know, in comparison to them, I, <laughs> it didn't impress anyone. But then you realize it's an advantage, you know, because people don't relate to you. So if you have a problem with the ego, okay, you know, hey, hey, pay respect for me, you know, I'm, I'm on a TV and some of my documentaries that are being broadcast all over the world. No, 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 no. I like it. It needed, it, needs, like to, it needs to stay like that. You know, people watch like the big crews leaving and they're saying, okay, the media is left and we, we are left with... Uh, this guy? <laughs> I, I don't look like a media. Yeah. I mean, it looks impressive on the screen, but while in there, you know, it's like the real media left and we'll, we are left with, you know, uh, someone who is working for uh, Matnasim. I don't know how to translate <laughs> it into English. Yeah. No, it's, it, it, I guess it, uh, it's an advantage to be approachable and to be able to talk to these people. Yeah, I mean, in these regions, it is very important not, you know, to look scary and to look intimidating, mm-hmm. you know, beca- because people are very much afraid from all over. It's not like in Israel that you have an army. In those places, you have army, you have militias, you have sub-militias, you have gangs, you have prisoners who were released out of prison because, you know, at that point of time, they were the only one who had the guts to fight. And with all mm-hmm. these people around you, you know, people would be very, very cautious, you know, before they're opening their mouth and, and speak, you know, because some people will not find what they have to say in a likable way. So when they see someone who looks like a warrior himself, you know, 
when you are in a state of fear, you will not talk to him. Right. And when yeah. he sees me, not, not me personally, they don't know me, but you know, someone who looks like, okay, he doesn't have a lot of crew, he doesn't look threatening or intimidating, yeah, let's try. What's, what's the most horrendous scenario or place you, you've ever been and you said to yourself, like, this is really, that's hell on earth? Uh, I don't have one. You know, I was asked this question a few times, but I never have one answer. Because, you know, every time I thought, okay, this is the most horrible thing and situation I've ever been in, uh, another come, another one is coming, and I would change, you know, my, my choice. You know, when I try to think of it, I will give you not even a war. Uh, it was a tsunami in Aceh, Indonesia. We were in a place that where more than 200,000 bodies, almost a quarter of a million bodies over there. And you cannot breathe. I mean, when you breathe, you breathe the smell of death. And you cannot even convey it to the audience, you know, because something, even if you can describe very good, you cannot describe smell. What, what would you say about smell? And you're on the verge of collapse because you need to breathe. You need to move, and you need to move very hard because you need a lot of energy because everything is mud, you know, and little mountains, and you, and you need to climb, you know, to tell the story. And, and you know, like, uh, philosophically, I was, like, distressed, you know. It's like God from upstairs, you know, knocked this place down, and I thought I will never, never see anything like it in my life. But then, you know, then you get out, you know, miraculously from a battle in Lebanon, some other people were killed and you're alive. Then you go along with a colleague, a friend of mine, James Foley. We went inside Syria together the same week, the same week, November 2012. James Foley's the reporter that was beheaded. beheaded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, you know, me, when I got inside along with uh, Amir, Amir Tibon, now he's a correspondent in Washington for Haaretz, he was a researcher in Uvda. We went inside into Idlib region, we knew that James Foley did, you know, the same entrance, but he took another path. So we, this path led him to another territory because Syria is torn into territories. Mm -hmm. We met very sympathetic people, you know, when we got in and, you know, a few kilometers away. He approached people who sold him to ISIS and this is the way he was beheaded. So <clears throat> I cannot choose like one thing that rise above the rest, you know, as the most horrifying. There were quite a few. So, I mean, how do you, you know, how do you end up dealing with all this? Because from for I, I, I think it's safe to say that for an average person, many of these experiences would probably be horrifically traumatizing. It would put them in a place of you know PTSD, maybe maybe permanent PTSD, PTSD. And but you kind of managed to or says who? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm just saying. I, I wonder how how do you kind of cope with it? Do you you know? First of all, you know, had I heard someone speaking like that before I started, you know, being a journalist, I would be sure that he would be, I don't know, something is wrong with this guy or something will be wrong with this guy. And this is not something that I would never, ever do. But, you know, when you do it, two things. One, you get like to a different mode of the normal world you are operating in. And I, I, I cannot explain it, you know, it's something that just happened. When I, whenever I cross a border, for example, you know, you feel something in your chest, like, 
is being expanded. Uh, you're being very focused. I'm not like a focused man, you know, in my normal life. You know, I can be called like an astronaut, you know, by my friends, but I become like a German man. I become so focused about everything. <laughs> and uh, I was not PC. And then, uh, and then, you know, like you work and something comes out of you that wouldn't come, you know, on a regular basis. Then you like realize, a soldier in war. Yes and no. I mean, a soldier in war, and I saw it when I joined like soldiers in the Lebanon of uh, the Nahal regiment. This is second Lebanon war? Yeah, 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 yeah. So on the one hand, yeah, but on the second hand, on the other hand, you know, you're, been, you're with friends. It's different. You know, okay, you risk your life. You, you walk into a village and you know that there is going to be an encounter with the Hezbollah forces. But you're surrounded by, you know, like 200 people, friends of yours. These are brothers, you know, like brothers in arms. When I go to places, I'm alone. I don't, I don't, have, any, I don't have anybody. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and beside, you know, the fear of the war and the bullets and the grenades, my even biggest fear is, you know, if someone will reveal who I am and where I'm from, you know, in places like Syria or Iraq or Lebanon or Libya, it might be even more dangerous. So I don't have the luxury, I know it sounds like a crazy sentence, I don't have the luxury to be afraid of the war. But to your question, <coughs> you come back, and I think one of the things is that, you know, you, you have a pretty rough uh, experience, but, you know, for three weeks on the average, and then you will be back in Israel, you can go drink something, you can go to the beach, you can uh, be again with your friends, so, you know, there is like horizon when you enter the place. It's not like the other Syrians or the other Bosnian, you know, will be stuck there for years. You have refuge. Home. Yeah. So, so it's, you know, it gives you a lot of energy and uh, vitality for this uh, period of time. And then I realize, you know, individually speaking, that I'm able to, to go on. It's not, you know, that I'm, that, that I don't feel because I feel very much. I don't believe that a correspondent, a journalist can do this line of job if, if he doesn't really, really care and have feelings. So I think about it and I reflect about it and whenever there is a need, I would go, you know, to a professional, you know, to talk about it mm -hmm. because I want to. I don't want like to, to pretend to be the macho that everything is fine with me and then, you know, when you're 60 or 70, you become a bit mad because you didn't, you know, confront all these demons. I, uh, I, I might, this might be sound like cheap psychology, but I read somewhere that you actually overcame cancer as a child. Might yeah. that have like, I don't know. I mean, maybe it was kind of confronting death at such a young age. I understand the question, but it is, you don't, make, I wouldn't don't say cheap psychology because you know, it makes sense, but it happened when I was uh, 17. It was uh, very difficult, you know, to experience it as, as uh, someone who is 17, as you know, uh, you know, do a lot of surfing and, uh, you know, a lot of friends and scouts and life is fine and a lot of energy. And then, you know, boom, and you go through chemotherapy and radiation for almost one year. Since the beginning, you know, there was like... Uh, they told me you're going to be fine because your immune system of a young man is fine and the sort of uh, growth that you have, you know, is not too much severe. I mean, if you won't do anything, you will not be here. But if you go through this uh, therapy, you will be fine. So it was in my head. But 
I think mainly because I was 17, I was a young man. My mother, she's a biochemist, and she knew everything about it. But when I didn't ask her, you know, a question about my illness, you know, when I was ill, and at the end of this period of time, when I, you know, became healthy again, she told me, you know, you were very lucky to be uh, stupid. <laughs> like, there was not like, you didn't think about, like, the meaning of everything and the philosophy of everything, like I have a cancer, what's the meaning of life, will I be here, what is life, what is death, what is... No, I was 17 years old, very upset, you know, that I have to stay in line, you know, uh, <laughs> to go to a room in a hospital and I cannot go to surfing because you cannot be exposed to the sun. And I was furious, you know, about it. Like, that was a trauma, that was a tra tragedy. And my mom, she was clever enough, you know, to okay, let's maintain this line of tragedy for him. Yeah, yeah, it's horrible. You're right, you cannot serve. So there was no meaning, you know, took, took, knock on wood. But if I had it, you know, mm -hmm. like 20 years later, you know, you become too sophisticated, intelligent, intelligent human being who reflect, but a 17-year-old boy is not. So, you know, immediately, you know, six months after... I was like uh, healed, you know, I remember we went to a restaurant, all the family and something that I wanted on a menu, they didn't have it and I was so upset and I said, no, no, it's horrible and it, it is a tragedy and my father was laughing, oh, okay, you're healthy now, huh? <laughs> like, so there was no... It didn't really weigh down no, on you. No, like, no, uh, no, no, and I try to think about it, you know, again and again when people ask me, but... Nah, not really. Not really. I gotta tell you, no. So you, uh, you this this decade, because I mean, there's plenty to talk about um, before that. But you were recently in uh, Syria. I mean, not recently, but I've been were. three times in Syria. Yeah, and the the first one was right at the beginning, 2012, right? At the same week uh, of the entrance of James Foley, November 2012. So how, what was that like? I mean, was it, was it just actually, kind of normal? Actually, we didn't plan it, you know. Mm -hmm. It sounds weird, but uh, we wanted to do like uh, a report, a documentary about um, the situation in Syria without getting inside Syria through the stories of the refugees who came to Turkey. So we went to Turkey, you know, when they were concentrated on the border. There were like thousands of them already back then. And they were living also, you know, in houses by the border, but on the Turkish side. And we became friends, me and Amir, and we made interviews with, with them. And then, you know, I felt like, okay, we have what we need, uh, good interviews. The only thing I can think about is like we lack the visual side. So I just wanted, you know, to film, you know, from the Turkish side, uh, the land of Syria. It's like you go, you know, to our border and you film Lebanon from, you know, Israel, from the border. We didn't have any idea to get in. But then, you know, <coughs> I asked one of the interviewees if I can go on the top of his roof because, you know, you, you can see, you know, the best from there. It was uh, like the best angle. And so, yeah, yeah, sure, man, no problem. Let me have you some coffee. And everything was really nice. And I took some... Uh, <coughs> And I was filming a little bit, and you know, it's funny, as in Israel, you see a border, but you don't see a border fence. So what's going on? But you do see, you do watch, you know, some patrol. Turkish soldiers, yeah, patrol. And, and I asked him, you know, so, and, and this guy, you know, the Syrian people over there tell me, yeah, we go inside Syria, and we come back to Turkey, and we go and fight in Syria, and then we come back, you know. So, okay, they let you go in and come back? No, it's not allowed. So how do you manage to do it? 
Well, we wait for them to cross. It's very easy, you know, to <laughs> trick them and we get in. So I said, you know, like half laughing. So you, get, you can get me in if I want? Yeah, no problem. <clears throat> and then, okay, okay. I look at Amir. I approach him. Amir, would you like to get in? I mean, I don't want to be like the crazy one who took a normal guy inside. And, uh, for you, it's just another day in the office. But for <laughs> him, it's... Like... Yeah, and Amir said, yeah, I would love to get in, man. <laughs> Okay, okay. And then I realize, um, uh, I tell this guy, listen, uh, we have $100, you know, to give you. Is it enough, you know, for, for you to smuggle us inside? Yeah, 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 your friend, it's absolutely enough. Let's do it. And then, you know, I thought, okay, it's crazy. Because Syria was crazy, you know, Tunisia, Egypt, even Libya is, was fine. But Syria, it's like a police state. It's absolutely crazy. And would you go inside Chaos Syria? Chaos and mayhem. Yeah, it was a mayhem. And so I thought, you know, maybe before taking a decision like that, I have to think more. I have to reflect more. I have to advise more. I, I need to consult people. Like maybe I will call my editor. Maybe I will call some people. And then, you know, like I realized, no, 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 no. Exactly the opposite. I mean... Not any editor or not any expert can give me like experience of how it is to get inside. I mean, because no one is doing it more than I do. <clears throat> so what can I ask him about, you know, just to get a permission? And I don't want a permission on, or to hear that I cannot go inside. As they and say in Hebrew, it's a kitback <clears throat> question. Yeah, 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 it is. Question that you better, better not. Better not ask the rabbi. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 of course. He would not let me. And then he wouldn't... Even if he wanted me to go inside, you know, he cannot be the one who authorized me to go inside yeah. Syria. He doesn't want that on his conscience. Exactly. So, <laughs> and then I realized, you know, like we live in an age that everything is being, you know, like um, quoted and everything. Like when you talk on the phone, someone is listening. When you send an email, someone can, you know, take it. So you cannot even plan a, like a journey inside Syria because it will be known to someone who managed to take a phone call or to watch a text of yours or, or an email, especially when it's on the border, you know, with all the intelligence of everybody. And for some, you know, coincidence, it happened that I have an opportunity to get inside with no phone call, with no email, with not discussing about it, with not planning it, nobody knows. Ah, this is gold. You know, it, it'll never happen. Like a ninja. No, I mean, not, I mean, no one knows about it. So yeah. this is my chance. And then we, we decided to go, to go inside. And, I, and as I told you, you know, it was, it was fine. The people were very, very sympathetic to us. And even... Yeah, just you know, because you took that route and not that route. Right. I remember now what your father <laughs> way, told we to, you. We told him that... You were uh, lucky to be, yeah. Lucky to be stupid. Yeah, <laughs> right. But, but, you know, you can call it stupid, but it was like a brilliance of, uh, you know... <laughs> intellect to understand that you got a chance that you will never have in your life like so you do it again if i will do it again you would do it if like not you were in the same situation if you were yeah oh yeah 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 definitely you have no regrets why in your I? career like in your mm. professional career only regret that i didn't did it didn't do it like twice as much yeah so yeah. you step into syria i mean it's not just like total chaos it's not like no i mean at the beginning i mean it sounds weird because we have the word syria you know what comes to mind but uh -huh. 
we enter like a small lake, you know, behind the forest, and we get in, and then I ask, you know, the one who smuggled us inside, are we in Turkey or in Syria now? No, already Syria. And then your heart, you know, pumping. And it is so beautiful. This is the, the first poem that comes to mind. It's like Toscana, really. Toscana in Italy. And, uh, and this is what... Oh, you bought me. <laughs> yeah. And this is... And you see, you know, the places uh, in the village, you know, and the view that they have in the landscape. But then you see, you know, the houses, you know, are bombed. Because, okay. And this is how you realize, okay, this is a war zone. And you hear also a bit of shooting, you know, behind, behind the mountain. It's a very mountainous region. So we've been with the people, you know, with the, with the rebels those who are fighting against uh, Bashar Assad. And back then, you know, these were the moderate mm-hmm. <coughs> Syrians to fight against Assad. It was very interesting. We were not engaged in battles ourselves. And then we even told them, you know, we are Jewish. And they say, no problem. Welcome. Absolutely no problem. I even thought about telling them that I'm an Israeli, but I will never do it. Not because I scare for my life. You know, I scare for them because if... If, God forbid, someone would realize that I'm an Israeli and then he might say, hey, Muhammad knew that he's an Israeli and didn't do anything about it, so he mm-hmm. might get in trouble. And I wouldn't like to get anyone in trouble, you know. All that time in Syria, though, you must have felt at some point, or maybe not just in Syria, but in other places, that your life was on the line. I mean, do you, have, you, have you ever been in a situation where you felt like, okay, this might be it? No. I mean... I know that I'm risking my life, but I never thought like, you know, in a dramatic way that it might be my last hour. Never, I got to admit. But if, even if you didn't think <laughs> it, I mean, objectively, there were situations like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were situations. As I told you, you know, in Lebanon, uh, you know, they were shooting all over and there were RPG, you know, going bet- me, between me and the soldiers that I was filming. You can actually watch it, you know, in my documentary, like how it goes. That was luck. Uh, in Pakistan, Afghanistan, very frightening moment. In Syria, in Iraq. I've been six times in Iraq. It was very, very scary. And um, You were in Mosul, right? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Uh, also in Mosul. Last time I've been to Mosul, it was the capital of ISIS, and it was a decisive battle you know, against ISIS. And uh, it was very scary because we got inside you know, a uh, neighborhood of ISIS, and you can hear like... Uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi voice, you know, recorded, saying to everybody, go get them, go kill them, the suicide bomber, go get them. And they managed to get some of us. Us means like the Iraqi Shia army I joined. And, and then you realize that, you know, your life depends upon the success of the Shia soldiers. Okay, so these are the good guys now. But if these Shia soldiers would realize that I'm an Israeli... <laughs> I'm fucked up. I mean, really. I mean, an Israeli like, and and this is like the elite unit. It is called the Golden Division. So everything is so so crazy. I I had a plan, you know, in case something really goes wrong. Again, you know, normally I I become more scared when I watch like the thing that I filmed while in the editing room because while in the field, I told you about this mode that I have. I'm so much focused and I need to work and I need to operate my camera. I, need, I have something to hold. I have something to work with. I have something, you know, to, to aim. I'm occupying myself with a lot of work to do. I'm trying not to reflect. 
I think a lot of before coming to a place. I think even more when I come back. But you know, in action time, just to operate, not to have a lot of meanings, you know, to life. And then when I watch my material, you know, in the studio with the coffee, so this mode is already gone because you can relax yourself. And then, you know, it looks like, wow, this is shit. This is crazy. How could I do it? You know, mm-hmm. then it looks even more crazy. So I had a plan, you know, in one time in uh, Syria. It was like fr- frontline of ISIS and uh, knowing the fate of James Foley and knowing that they keep on killing people and beheading, whether it is journalists or other people that they get ISIS. If it gets to me, I just want to die. I, I never want, you know, to be like under any torture. And then, you know, like I spotted like the tallest building around. And if they manage like to take and to win the battle and they will try to execute anybody, all the people or, uh, you know, to torture them, I will run, you know, to the roof of the building and I will jump. That was the only plan I had in life for one battle. <coughs> and, you know, luckily, nothing, you know, came into action. And while in there, uh, I think, you know, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be fine and I will be back. It's yeah. interesting. I wonder what what I'm thinking is, what does it say about you that your choice of suicide is jumping from a height? Because <laughs> there's guns around. You could you could say, okay, I'm going to grab a gun and shoot myself. You could you like, you could choose all these different ways, but you chose okay, the highest building. I'm going to jump. Would make an amazing ending for the for the article, you know, for the piece, like the shot. Okay, listen very carefully. <laughs> I never shot a gun, and I don't know how to shot a rifle. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm serious. I'm wow. absolutely serious. But in in the IDF, didn't they take you to range? No, because I I volunteered to the IDF because of my illness. So I didn't ah. even undergo like a basic training. So I never shot a rifle. Obviously, I will be able to shot a gun, but you know, that's not the time to begin. Right. You know, right. Uh, <laughs> Learning. So I appreciate my choice of, you know, <laughs> jumping from a tall I wonder okay. though, uh, Itai, like you come back here, it gives you perspective, I guess, right? Like, and, and some interesting thoughts about our life here, the bubble, And I, I, I love the play. I love the fact that Tel Aviv is a bubble. I love it. Israel. You know? Yeah, I mean, that's the life I want to live, you know. Um, if in Israel, I want to be in Tel Aviv. I love Tel Aviv. And I'm not like running away from life. No, I want to encounter life. And I want to encounter the biggest hardship in life. But this is also part of life. You know, I'm doing like surfing, kite surfing, windsurfing. But don't, don't you appreciate more? My brother is a DJ. I'm playing <laughs> guitar music, you know. So, so that's life. This is also part of life. I don't call it a Bible. I love it, you know. No, but I mean, don't you appreciate more the, like what we have here when yeah. you come back from that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, first of all, you know, as an Israeli, and we are complaining all the time about everything in Israel, then you realize like what you have. Because you didn't think about it, you know, before going outside. And when you come back, you know, the fact that we have a state, that, you know, it has, you know, it's faults, but, you know, still, the things that we do have are amazing. But, um, you know, regarding proportions, I do appreciate everything, but, but you know, you, you try to think, again, you don't do it while in there, but later you try to think and 
And even with friends, you know, people who ask you questions about like uh, your experience, I find it very difficult to have a conversation with them. I don't know, people ask me like, you know, you know, Israeli macho questions. So how is it? You know, they were shooting, you were about to die. You, were, you don't feel like about talking, you know. Yeah, 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 man, it was hectic, fucking hectic. Yeah, yeah, man. just leave me alone. You know, I don't <laughs> want to. It's very, very difficult, you know, even with my wife. I don't. I don't talk about it, never. I can talk about it only with people who've been there. Like I have a friend, a cameraman, his name is Gili. Gili Somech has also been in Mosul working for other uh, news organizations, a Chinese one. But, you know, we've been in some strange situation together and we can talk. You know, not make it dramatic, not... And, you know, when both of us, you know, have this weight, you know, the thing that you saw. And definitely, you come back, you appreciate things more, but yeah, I mean, you know, some people will say in life you need to go only where the good things happening and try to run away from all the bad things. And me as a journalist, I don't think so, you know, I, I mean, I think it is all the package. And not because I was ill, you know, just, you know, it's like the full package. I mean, you will never be able to run away completely from everything. So you need to, like, to confront it, you need to digest it, and you need to... I really want to be engaged and to help if I can. By the way, not only doing journalism work. So it's like all the package. So you appreciate life, but it's not like you manage, you know, to... <clears throat> to do the uh, running away, you know, to, to the bubble and forget about this place. This place still exists in my mind. I have to ask you, we, time is running out, but you got married. Yeah. And realistically, she took a huge risk, right? By marrying you, in, in a, from her perspective. Yeah, but, but you know... Is there like she, a pact, I wonder, or a deal, or like two more wars and that's it, or something <laughs> like that? Yeah. She knows who she's dealing with. And by the way, you know, I'm like a war correspondent, but when you think about it, it's like one month. In the year, I'm, I'm doing this field work. This is like the average. I mean, most of the time, I'm, I'm here. I'm not like... Yeah, uh, but... But obviously... Yeah, I'm but that one month is... <laughs> yeah. That's quite a month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, it's... Of course, there is not a pact, but, but she expects me not to go there anymore. Not to die. Also. Following this phone conversation I told you about, when I told her that everything is fine and beautiful and Mosul and quiet and boring, <laughs> and then she saw the documentary, and she had like these senses, you listen to me very carefully now. No more Iraq. No more Mosul. <laughs> no more Natania. You're not going even there <laughs> anymore. <laughs> you know, you're not going there any, uh, anymore. Shalom's uh, from Natania. <laughs> also, also, her brother is from Natania. Her brother is from Natania, so she's laughing. You know, you're not going even there anymore. <laughs> uh, no, you're not going out. And, and I said, yeah, okay. And actually, now we have a child. It will be one year old uh, next month. So she doesn't have to tell me, you know, when you watch him and when you realize that you're responsible for him. Uh, these were all the cliches coming out, but they are real. But, you know, to be sincere, so... I took a year off now. I was in a fellowship in the University of Michigan, and I'm glad, you know, because it was the exact, the best timing that I could ask for, you know, because I was really, really tired, and I really, really need to rest a little bit. And so it was one year off. Now I'm back. I'm taking my time. I'm not, you know, rushing, you know, to go to a place. And, you know, in Iraq and Syria, ISIS, 
you know, dying. I mean, it still exists, but, you know, the caliphate is not there anymore. And, you know, what will be the next thing? I don't know. You know, to tell you that never again will I go, you know, to these sort of places. I cannot, you know. I told my friends, you know, like three times before, I promise them and myself that I'm not doing it again. You know, because after like a traumatic experience, but then, you know, you take your time, you edit uh, your documentary. Yeah, we've talked about your credibility. Yeah, 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 exactly, (laughs) exactly. So even I don't believe myself, you know, uh, I have my reputation as a journalist, but, you know, in promising not to go to places, you know, never trust me. Well, at least we have a name for your biography. Everything is beautiful in Mosul. (laughs) (laughs) And boring. And boring. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming. Hey, thank Um, you guys. So if people want to, like, you're on social media and stuff? Hopefully, you know, within two months, I will have a site for myself, I-T-A-I-A-N-G-H-E-L. Other than that, I'm not so active. I have Facebook. I have, I think I have Twitter, but I, I almost <laughs> never use it. Okay. Uh, hopefully, when I have this uh, internet side of mine, you know, I will be active. And then all my lectures and everything. Yeah, but and if uh, like an Amer- community in the States wants to invite you for a lecture, how can they, do you do that and how can they contact yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, I've been doing quite a few lectures in uh, the US. You know, my email is itai.angheel at gmail.com. And you're on Facebook, so they can also reach you there, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I guess, you know, within two months, I'll have the site and everything will work fine. Perfect. Yeah. So before we go, we have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal, as we were telling you. JewishJournal.com, guys, check them out. They have great columns. They have other podcasts. They're all, they're all great. <laughs> they're all, they're all great. great. Uh, and also, uh, we accept donations. So please help us out. Go to 2 slash donate and, you know, contribute, contribute because we do it on our free time. And that is it. Thank you so much, Itai. Thank you so much, your, guys. Your, uh, before we, your your uh, pieces, like your news, your articles, uh, are they translated to English or? Yeah, yeah. Everything is going to be on my site now. Okay. You can find it here and there on Vimeo mainly, but uh, yeah. Okay. So that people, and if someone reaches me, you know, within with the email, I would be very happy. You know, I will be pleased. You know, to to send him or her the mail. Yeah, sure. Perfect. With all the links. Thank you so much for coming. We really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Bye.